Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, I talk to Adonis Vidu. We talk about his new book on inseparable operations and try to work through some of the basic but, of course, complicated language that comes with Trinitarian theology to talk about how God is both one and three, how do the persons act in creation, act in history, and how do we work through some of these things without falling into theological errors on all different sides. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Adonis. As always, we're brought to you by B&H Academic. Go to bhacademic.com to find out more about their latest offerings. You can also check out the Christian Standard Bible. Go to csbible.com to find out more about that English Bible translation. And now my conversation with Adonis Vidu. But first, no big deal. I'm joined by Adonis Vidu. Adonis, thanks so much for hopping on Church Grammar today. Pleasure to be here, Brennan. So we are going to talk about your new book, The Same God Who Works All Things. Uh, if anybody has paid attention to this podcast, you know, one of the critiques that I get is I talk about the Trinity too much on this podcast. But as I told you before, I just talk to people I want to talk to and about things I want to talk about. And I like talking about the Trinity. So this inseparable operations in particular is something that is an extremely important doctrine within the doctrine of the Trinity. And it's one of those things where I think everybody said this when your book came out, which was we've all been waiting for a book on inseparable operations. So, so what led to you writing this book? Was it sort of the gap in research? Was it, um, I mean, obviously your own personal interest, but what kind of led to you uh, writing on this topic in particular? Yeah, it was a gap, the gap in research. Um, I've been writing this um, book on the atonement um, a few years back, and um, I was connecting atonement to the doctrine of divine attributes and the doctrine of divine simplicity in particular, um, and <clears throat> inseparable operations was obviously not, not, too, not too far off from that. And I realized that, wait a minute, this is really significant for how we understand divine agency. So if we're talking about interpreting an act of God, atonement being an act, an act of God, and we have to vector in what divine agency looks like, what the persons, how the persons act, how do they, uh, how do they act together, uh, how do they act on one another or with one another, so I just realized, to my great surprise, and I should say somewhat selfish joy, that no one had written a book on this. And, and I said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. I'm going to step in, into this gap and, and try to put it out. But it's, yes. been, a, it's been several years, yeah. And this is a, what a, uh, let's look here, about a 350-page book with, uh, with indices added to the end. So you did everything. And that's the one thing I loved about this book is it wasn't, you know, there's the benefit, of course, in the 40,000 word intro or something like that, or the chapter in a book. But you really just said, I'm going to hit this from every angle. So that's what I want to kind of do is walk through uh, the different uh, ways that you talk about it. So let's start by giving just a real simple introduction to inseparable operations. What's the definition you would give? And what are some kind of basic handles you would put on that as we think through the doctrine? Sure. I mean, the, the doctrine of inseparable operations, as I define it, is the doctrine that the person's of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when they act outside of God's self, that is when they add, add extra or in the economy, they always act as one agent because they are one God. The doctrine basically prevents us from thinking about the persons having their own individual agency and, and their own distinct operations. And so that's what I'm calling hard inseparability. And I'm 
distinguishing that from soft inseparability, which understands divine, divine agency as being kind of like a cooperative, cooperative collective type of agency. The persons have roles and they have their own actions and their actions somehow cohere in this greater whole. Uh, so they're kind of like, you know, players on a team, um, each having their, each doing their own thing, but contributing to the larger effort of the team, basically. Yeah. So what are some of the dangers there? You're starting to hint at them. You know, you've got tritheism, or at least, you know, the, the uh, logical extension of that. There are three centers of consciousness, three wills kind of doing their own thing, getting mm -hmm. around the boardroom table together and talking about, you know, what they're going to do that day. You've got maybe the other extreme, if you deny it, which is modalism, collapsing it into sort of just different faces of God, but not distinct persons. So yeah. why are those dangers so important? How does inseparable operations help protect us from these type of dangers? And why, why should we even want to be protected from them? Right. I mean, th those, those have been the kind of the clear historic extremes, the kinds of off, uh, out of bounds uh, that we need to be careful of when we articulating the relationship between, between persons and essence and God. And I think that um, this, this notion that Gilles Emery points out, the equiprimordiality, of persons in essence, I think is really important here. That is that one should not prioritize either the persons or the essence of God. And, and if one is trying to keep that balance between them, then we were gonna have to make corrections on both ends. So fight off both tritheism as well as modalism. I think for this particular doctrine, it's, it's particularly modalism that's, that seems to be the more menacing threat because it emphasizes the unity of divine agency. So then the questions are, the question is, okay, how are then the persons still distinguished within the inseparable operations of the Trinity? Uh, tritheism is not so much a problem for me because, you know, that's kind of the, I'm, I'm pushing the pendulum away from that, away yep. from social Trinitarianism and so on. Although I do, I do maintain myself in, in a little bit of reserve in terms of critiquing social Trinitarianism altogether. Yeah, and why would you do that? What are some of your, your thoughts behind some of that? Yeah, I mean, so I've, I've actually intentionally tried to stay away from, from turning this book into a um, full-fledged assault on social Trinitarianism. Yeah. Because I wanted this book to be more of an exploration of the historic tradition of the church when it comes to the divine agency. And social Trinitarianism is a relatively novel phenomenon. The reserve comes from the discussion of the Cappadocian fathers and the Eastern tradition, which I still do not think lends itself easily to, an, to a social Trinitarian analysis. But at the same time, I think it does allow for the social analogy to work even if in a more, perhaps much more limited fashion than social Trinitarians would like. Um, so I think, you know, getting into that discussion would have been, would have been a little bit too complex for the book as it is, but I've actually discerned that, there, that in both East and West, there's this big, this universal embrace of, of inseparable operations. And there's a lot of uniformity between these traditions. And that's kind of where I try to focus. But when it comes to this question, does the modern, social analogy capture something of the Cappadocian dynamic. That's where I kind of left up, left off a little bit. I left some room for disagreement about this. Yeah. And I think that's one thing that's helpful about it is there's a little bit of a danger right now because of the recent debates about the Trinity and eternal subordination and some different things like that to want to spend most of our time fighting about it or uh, shooting arrows or, or whatever at each other about it. 
And what I thought was really helpful, I mean, I think you probably, um, did you start writing this before the big 2016 thing or was that, was that right after? Because uh, this came out in 21, came out this year. So um, had you already been working on it a little bit or was that, was that yeah. in your mind a little bit? Yeah, I've been working on it since, 20, since 2014. Yeah. So it wasn't even in yeah. your mind at the beginning, but I think it is good no. that you, uh, you did do a more constructive, positive account, which is much more helpful because, you know, let's say, Lord willing, this is read 50 years from now, 100 years from now, you know, people aren't going to be wondering what is all this stuff you're arguing about over here? You're doing something that's time tested and something constructive, which I think is great. Yeah, that's right. Although there are implications for that 2016 debate, obviously. Yep. Yep. Um, so when we talk through, you talked about modalism being kind of the creeping issue. You know, when I uh, teach it to students in particular, I'll talk about whether it's modalism, even whether it's, you know, somebody like Arius, I'll say, you know, what, what they're trying to do to give them credit is they're trying to affirm the oneness of God. They're trying to affirm the simplicity of God. They're trying to affirm these things that we think uh, are extremely important and that are extremely important. So where do you think the biggest uh, missteps are when you fall into modalism, kind of collapsing the persons, um, overemphasizing the oneness perhaps, because that, that sometimes is the critique of inseparable operations that you're talking too much about the oneness and not talking enough about what the persons are doing. So, so how, do you, um, how do you see this sort of creeping modalism, for lack of a better word, uh, kind of coming in? Do you see it in the church? Do you see it in academia? And what are some of the examples that you would, that you would pull out of there? You know, I think, I, I mean, I'm not sure if it's ironical or not, but I think it's, it's really um, more, more of a functional tritheism that seems to be the, the practical approach to the Trinity in our yeah. churches. I think it's all this language about roles and, and, and the person's doing this or that uh, different operation. I think that's, that's where the danger, I mean, the current danger lies. I think maybe a generation ago, people would have said, at least in theology, would have said that, you know, something like someone like Moltmann, for example, they would have talked about the functional unif unitarianism in, in theology. But I think our churches are not are not quite there. So I think it's actually that correction, the correction that I'm making here, that's kind of the more practically relevant type of correction. I think I think it's I think it's a given that that we are going to be emphasizing one more than another. In other words, we're going to be emphasizing the essence more than the persons or the persons more than the essence. I think it's, I think having that perfect equilibrium is, um, is impossible. And I think the question is not whether we are doing that or not. I think it's, it's a given that we're doing that. I think the question is, are we actually falling into modalism? Yeah. Are we actually falling into tritheism? You know, and, and, you, and one falls into modalism when one rejects the, reality of the distinctions between the persons and one when, when one treats these distinctions as being merely logical distinctions and not real distinctions uh and that's modalism basically yeah. but, how, but how we then parse it the actual distinctions and how we see the distinctions within, within the operations that's a whole different different matter yeah so let's talk to uh some of the let's maybe give two or three and take as much time as you want on this kind of clear examples in the bible where you'd say okay I'm going to teach inseparable operations from a couple of texts and inseparable operations is uh, kind of almost famously a pulling together lots of texts, right? There's not a lot of just sort of one text that does all the work for you, but what are a few right. that you'd point to to say that maybe cover that ground the most and how would you just, just give some basic handles on uh, introducing somebody biblically to the inseparable well, I, operations. I try to do this in chapter uh, in my first chapter in the book. Uh, where I kind of develop a biblical theology of inseparable operations. I take my time with it. It's about, it's over 50 pages yeah. uh, in a 340-ish in a page book. 
Uh, and the reason I wanted to do that is actually because I think a lot of people think that inseparable operations is a philosophical deduction or a metaphysical deduction from the, from, from the unity of God. And, we, and the argument goes something like this. Because God is one, God has to act as one. So it, it it's, it's, looks more like a metaphysical encumberment than anything else. Actually, I think it's the opposite. I actually think that the way in which the doctrine of the Trinity itself has developed biblically has been uh, via the uh, discovery of the fact that Christ acts inseparably with the Father. So what I try to do in that, in, that, um, in that chapter is to look at how Christ is basically identified with the Father. He's identified with Yahweh. And I'm, I'm kind of relying on a number of biblical authors, uh, I mean, biblical scholars, um, Larry Hurtado and uh, Andy Wright, um, uh, Richard Bauckham and a few others uh, who are basically driving this point and probably um, uh, Andy Wright more than others that Christ is identified with Yahweh. And how is Christ ident- identified with Yahweh? Well, by basically in two moves. First of all, ascribing to Christ precisely the covenantal kind of like kinds of activities that Yahweh is doing. Uh, lordship over the Sabbath, reinterpreting the law, forgiveness of sins, and so on. Those are covenantal kinds of activities. And then, but I say that move does not take us far enough because those kinds of activities might still in principle be delegated to someone else, to another agent, perhaps a a quasi-divine agent or something like that, or an angel. But then there's this other kind of activity, which is actually not a kind of activity at all, which is the act of creation, which is a single unique act by which God posits a reality outside of himself, right? So I've been looking at 1 Corinthians 8, right? Hebrews 2, uh, Colossians 1, where, where to Christ is our, uh, the Christ is ascribed the single and unique activity of creation, right? And, and that's kind of the hinge, I think, on which basically the divinity of Christ develops that Christ is divine because he does exactly the kinds of things that, that, that God is doing. And then you have texts such as John five nineteen, the son only does what he sees the father doing. And, and that whole discussion about the healing on the day of the Sabbath, uh, where Christ is attacked for doing that. And that Christ is responding, wait a minute, the father has been at work. The father's working and I'm working. So the implication there is that even on the Sabbath day, the father's still working. The father's still working, sustaining the creation, sustaining the world into being, and so on. And then the son receives his operations from the father, right? So, um, so when it comes to the, the, the um, kind of the biblical basis for inseparable operations, I went precisely at the point where to Christ are ascribed precisely the activities of God. Yeah. So the thing here, if, if I can just complete this line of argument. The interesting thing is, is that precisely because we can find and discover inseparable operations in scripture, that we can affirm the divinity of Christ, right? So we don't move from the kind of the metaphysical conception of divine unity and from that to inseparable operations, but we move through inseparable operations to the divinity of Christ, to the doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah, so carrying that along a little bit, uh, something uh, a colleague asked me when I first read this book, he said, you know, what was your sort of favorite part of the book or what do you think that was most helpful? And of course, every word in the whole book, Adonis, is, is fantastic. I mean, how could, it's like sure, yeah. picking my favorite child, you know, but I did say, you know, your introduction to biblical theology of inseparable operations is so helpful because you deal with some of the early high Christology conversation where, you know, you talked about Hurtado and Bauckham and Tilling and these different, you interact with these different biblical scholars. And I think it, it touched on a little bit of my own 
maybe my own experience is why I liked it so much. But when I was doing my dissertation on a Trinitarian reading of Revelation, this is a huge part of what I'm having to do is deal with what does it mean for Jesus to be God uh, in the first century? What does it mean? What, how, how is he being received uh, by his followers and by the writers of scripture? So I thought you just did such a good, thorough job of working through that issue. And you interact with, you know, Boltman and James McGrath and some others that I had, I had seen as well. One of the things that McGrath does, I think is interesting and you respond to, I'd like to hear you respond to it more, but you do it in the book as well, is this idea that he's not really ontologically just like the father. He's not literally God in the flesh, or he's not actually in some way sharing this essence with the father. What he's doing is maybe sharing attributes or having things delegated to him or doing things in a way that represent who God is, but we're not talking about an actual, you know, union of essence or something like that. So when you think about that, looking in the Bible, I think it is easy on a quote unquote plain reading to just say, well, Jesus is just doing what the father tells him to do. He's just sort of kind of an agent of, uh, of action, God's action in the world. So why is it so important? And where do you see these very clear connections when it comes to the shared nature of the father and son? Because that's obviously where a lot of this hinges is the inseparable operation is the fact that he is God doing these things, not merely, you know, a vice regent or, or a servant or something else. Right. That's, a, that's, a, that's exactly the kind of pushback that, uh, that I sent that I saw in the literature. Well, not pushback. It's kind of a, it's an undermining of a traditional biblical argument for the divinity of Christ. And it's, it's sort of invoking that, you know, yeah, there's a, there's a kind of a, perhaps a loose unity that maybe they have that, that the son and the father share different types of actions. That they do similar things together that, you know, that these actions are delegated from one to another. But there are certain, certain elements in, the, um, in those very texts that I'm talking about. For example, uh, John 5, John 5, 26, right? Um, which is a really interesting text where Jesus says that he has life, that, that, he, that the Father has granted him to have life in himself. So you have this sort of duality in that text where on the one hand, the Son receives something from the Father. He receives life from the Father, but at the same time, he receives it as something that he, has, he now has in himself. So I think that that simply does not allow us to get away with a kind of thinking about Jesus as simply a delegate, as simply a media, simply a kind of um, an agent of God, an inferior agent of God. But at the same time, so at the same time as the equality is stressed between them, at the same time, we have stressed here the directionality. He does receive life from the Father, but he receives life to have life in, in himself. And plus, you have all these other perichoresis type texts that the Father is in me and I'm in the Father, right? And that also stresses the, the kind of the ontological unity between the Father and the Son. Yeah, and kind of watching them, you know, watching Jesus, maybe a kind of a crass or simple way to do it is you, when you see Jesus doing things that only God can do, you kind of have two options. You can either say, well, God just sort of uh, allows Jesus to borrow his divinity or gives him the power, power to do things that he could do himself or something. Or you can say, this is actually proper to who Jesus is, that he is able right. to do this because of who he is. So maybe talk through that a little bit, because that's, you know, feeds into appropriations and some of these other sort right. of related doctrines. Yeah. So how do you talk through that issue there of, on the one hand, yes, he is doing what his father's doing, even if we affirm, you know, the eternal generation, that he receives his existence from the father in some sense. How do you work through that in a way that doesn't just equal obvious subordination? Before I get to that, um, this, this other aspect of the, of the Gospels, this is in John 14. This is Philip's. This is the, the kind of famous Philip episode. When, when Philip is asking this, 
this question, you know, can, you know, it's great that you're doing these things, Jesus, but can we now see the father? Yep. In other words, yeah, we take it, you know, we understand that you're doing these great things, but uh, the, the implication or the assumption that Philip seems to be making is that he is just an agent of the father. And then Jesus's response is you've seen me, you've seen the father. It's the father doing these works, right? It's the father who lives in me, living in me, doing these works that I'm doing. So again, you know, there's that ontological uh, identity, but you're right. Um, even if the works are common and shared, there is within the works themselves, this directionality, this fromness where the son is acting from the father and he only acts from the father. Um, so um, can you, can you repeat that question? <laughs> yeah. Brandon? I like, I like that. I lost my train of thought there and I kind of went back and forth. Yeah. No, you're good. I was going to, I was going to say, yeah, just going along what you're saying there, the idea of the doctrine of appropriations that you know, mm -hmm. each of the persons do things that are proper to God. How is that? How would you say that's a better option or a more clear biblical option than just kind of bare subordinationism, which, which sometimes, like you said, even to the disciples, it seems at times seems to be the obvious answer. Well, yeah, that's the thing about subordination. Subordinationism can only work when you have separate natures that can be subordinate to one another. But once you admit the idea that Christ, that the Son and the Father share the same essence, the same, share the same simple essence, which is not partitioned between them, but it's the same being, basically, that, that the whole language of subordination does not make sense. Because subordination implies different wills, different powers, different, different substances, basically. And that was the Aryan mistake, right? They saw Jesus saying, you know, the Father is greater than I. Oh, look. And, and therefore, the Father, you know, therefore, the fa Father must be... Um, must be a different being than Jesus because he's greater than Jesus. So it was that kind of logical equivalency between, between those ideas. Uh, you know, appropriation, uh, it's a, this is a tricky concept, appropriation. And, 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 and it, it, it's, many people are still treating appropriation as a way of separating between different actions. You know, uh, yes, the persons of the Trinity act together, but this action is appropriated to this person and this other person, this, this other action is appropriated to this other person. And it just seems to, for some, it seems to be another way of distinguishing between actions. I, I treat appropriation more as a kind of a, a hermeneutical key, a kind of a more, more of an epistemological concept, something that gives us greater semantic depth into the actions, uh, into the, the inseparable action of God, resisting the further splitting of the action, but at the same time, it's a, it's a way of discerning in that unique action something about the proper place of the person. It reveals something about an individual person, but without giving that person its own, uh, you know, their own actions, as it were. So I think, you know, appropri appropriation sometimes is, is, um, is described as the kind of, as the kind of, as the sort of the tool that helps us get at the distinctiveness of the persons. I think in a certain sense, this is true, right? But we have to be careful in what sense it is true. I think it's more in the sense that it's trying to, it's, I, I treat it more as, as an epistemological concept that, that lets us glimpse something of the personal identity of each in that one inseparable operation. Yeah. So would you say something like um, what appropriations really do is just in, in some ways actually help us see the unity better. It's actually a way to better understand the inseparable uh, operations because right. you see the son doing divine things, which is an inseparable act or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, one, one example that I have is um, 
is if you think about the Bar Barman Declaration, right? Barman Declaration is, is the kind of the common work of a number of German theologians, right? But it really, it, it's the, the fundamental, I mean, the primary writer of the Barman Declaration has been Karl Barth, you know? And the document is, is the common work of a number of theologians, but as you look through the document, you can glimpse Barth through the document because it reveals something of Barth's own style, Barth's own mo mode of operation and so on. And I think with appropriation, we can say something like that, that namely that certain, certain operations, such as the giving, the giving of spiritual gifts, for example, reveals to us, gives us a hint about the personal identity of the Holy Spirit as the gift of the Father and the Son, the common gift of the Father and the Son. But it doesn't mean that the giving of the, the, giving of the gifts is something that only the Spirit does. Yeah. But there's something about gift Right. And there's something about the giving that is there's something about the operation which tracks with the personal property of the spirit. Yeah, but it, it's still a tricky, it's still a tricky concept. It's not a way of individuating actions. It's not a it's not a way of individuating the persons. It presupposes that, that the persons have already been individuated. Yeah. Just like with Bart, you know, if we didn't know there was a Bart, and if we did, didn't know what Bart's writing style was, we wouldn't be able to glimpse Bart in the Barman Declaration. So appropriation presupposes that the persons were already distinguished, right? And then, and, and that we have some knowledge of what the propria of the persons are, right? And then gives us a way of, of sort of finding those in the common operation. Yeah, okay, so let's, let's go through a few of the sort of common pushbacks, maybe some of the mm -hmm. harder cases when it comes to that. You deal with these in your book, I think, uh, phenomenally. And uh, the big one, of course, is the incarnation. What do we do with the incarnation? If the acts of God are inseparable, then how can we not say that in some sense, the Father and the Holy Spirit were incarnate as well, right? How do we avoid patripassianism that the Father also died on the cross or whatever? Uh, so how do you work through the relationship between the inseparable operations and the incarnation itself, right? That this is not the Father and Son putting on, or the Father and Spirit putting on flesh as well. Uh, this is proper to or fitting to the Son but in some sense, it's still an inseparable act. How would you work through some of those issues? Uh, the distinction that I make there is between acts and states. Um, and say that the doctrine of inseparable operation really has to do with whenever God is producing something outside of God's self, whenever God is creating something, a created effect, as Augustine calls it. Right? So basically, I define, I define a divine operation as the production of an, of an effect, the production of a created effect. If we bear in mind that kind of definition of action, then we can say that whatever in the incarnation has to do with the creation of an effect, it is the common work of the Trinity. That means that the creation of the human nature of Jesus Christ is a common work of the Trinity. But that's not the only thing that happens in the incarnation because in the incarnation, you not only have this production of a human nature, but you, hold, you also have the assumption of this human nature, or the, actually I should say the reception of this human nature by the son. So Cyril of Alexandria liked to talk about uh, uh, the incarnation as the clothing of the, hu of the son of God with, uh, the hum with human nature. So, so starting from that, I could, I could also use this analogy of a, you know, of a gentleman and a butler, you know, um, and say the, the butler is helping the gentleman to get dressed but it's only the gentleman getting dressed. <clears throat> so, so both the butler as well as the gentleman are doing the dressing, 
but only the gentleman is getting dressed. I know this is kind of a social Trinitarian type of analogy because I'm talking about three, you know, two centers of consciousness here. Yeah, no, we uh, we just assume that all analogies break down. We we know that exactly. That's, That's, That's good. Fine. Thank you. Okay, <laughs> so now I can I can freely use you know all the ridiculous analogies that I can come up yeah. with. Let's talk about an egg while we're at it. Let's just go ahead. And- all right. Yeah, I'm okay with that. I actually, I'm fine. I'm fine with any analogy as long as you as long as you say it's 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 imperfect and as long as you re- realize its limitations. So in the incarnation, basically, the state of becoming incarnate belongs to the sun himself and only to the sun because only the sun receives this human nature but the very production of this human nature and anything that has to do with any created effect in this human nature belongs to belongs to the sun uh, i'm sorry um to the whole trinity so patripassianism right how you know if everything that a person does the other persons also do which is how kind of i define in a hard inseparability then shouldn't we say also that the father also dies because dying is something that the son does. So isn't that what the father and the spirit should also be doing? And this is where, again, the, um, the distinction, the Christological distinctions between the two natures of Jesus Christ play a part, you know, because dying is a passion. Again, dying is not an operation. It's, it's a passion. It's not a production of an effect. It's the, it's the reception of some effect, right? So, when it comes to that, when it comes to the cross, the death is received is something that the human nature of Jesus Christ undergoes, and therefore we can we have to say that only the Son dies because only the Son has the human nature, right? But everything that has to do with any divine operation in and around the passion of Jesus Christ, right? If, for example, the Father does anything at the cross. Right. If the father does, that is, if he produces any effect, whether it's a punishment, for example, then in virtue of the inseparable operations, the son also produces that same effect and the spirit also does. So one of the things that that this doctrine helps us see, it helps us resist pitting the father against the son. Yeah. There's only the father doing the punishing, for example, and the son being the one who receives the punishment. Of course, at some point, only the son receives a punishment if there is a punishment. And I think there is. Because only the son has a has a um, a passive human nature. Only the son has a you know a passable human nature and passive as well. But insofar as there is any meeting out of punishment, you know, insofar as it is as it is an operation, it's the operation of all three of them. Okay, let's talk about uh, one more kind of uh, really interesting one that you bring out here is Pentecost, right? We haven't talked about the spirit uh, too much so far, but obviously right. crucial when you think about. Um, you know, Gregory of Nyssa in particular, sort of how he starts working out this idea of inseparable operations with the spirit, finishing the work of God, culminating the work of God, these kind of things. Um, Pentecost is obviously in one sense in salvation history, this massive event in which we kind of see the spirit, uh, you know, on full display in some ways. Um, now, obviously he's, he's clearly uh, talked about throughout all of scripture, clearly uh, there at the baptism and through the works of Jesus and things like that. But you've got this very particular moment and what people want to do with that particular moment is say, okay, John 14 to 16, I'm leaving. When I leave, I'm going to send you the spirit. And then he does. And then the spirit comes and it almost is like a, you know, HGTV trading places type thing. You know, I'm going to go over here, you go over there. I'm going to head back upstairs. You, you go downstairs and, and do the, do the God thing with, with the people down there. Uh, my work is done. It is finished. I'm going to go sit down and take a nap. So how do you, uh, how do you work through, uh, man, I feel, I feel like a heretic even, um, uh, talking about how bad that is, but, uh, <laughs> How do you actually not say that, right? How do you work through this idea? 
that in one sense, Christ has a genuinely left. He has genuinely mm-hmm. ascended. He has genuinely mm-hmm. gone into his heavenly session. Mm-hmm. He has genuinely sent the spirit in some distinct way. Uh, how do you work through that uh, in terms of the inseparable operations? Because it does seem so disconnected uh, so clearly, you know, if you're just kind of reading it uh, plainly in some ways. Yeah, definitely. So the one thing we do have to affirm is that Christ, like you said, Christ really has ascended. Um, that is Christ and his humanity really has ascended. Uh, his, his body is not here. Right. Um, so, but, the, and that is significant because uh, when it comes to, to the mission of the son, we say that the son has, the son has come, was sent by the father, but he comes to a place where he already was like John says, right. He was in the world, but the, the world did not know him. Yeah. Uh, so the mission, the coming of the son does not mean his arrival into a place that's novel to him. Right. And therefore his departure, right. As the son of God does not, does not mean that he's no longer omnipresent, that he's no longer here, but it, it, the doctrine of the ascension is primarily about, I would say, well, not maybe not primarily, but we have to vector in the humanity of Jesus. Right. So I would argue that the humanity of Jesus is not bodily present here, but at the same time, uh, Christ continues to be present and he continues to be present precisely through the Holy Spirit because it's the same God, right? It's the same God that's Father, Son, and Holy, Holy Spirit. So when, when Christ promises to be, to be with his disciples forever, right, his promise is cashed out in the coming of the Holy Spirit, which is, you know, Paul says in Ephesians 4.10 that Christ ascended higher than heavens. He has ascended to fill everything. So his ascension is not a departure. Also, which is why I really think ascension is a good news. But I think you're right. You, we don't have this this kind of um, you know high fiving of each other on on the way up or, and you know uh, on the on the way down. Uh, Christ going up, Spirit coming down, um, because the because I mean the language the language that we have and the promise that we have is the continued the continued presence of Christ specifically uh, with his disciples and, and with the church. And I think in that respect, it's significant that the spirit of the spirit of the Pentecostal spirit is precisely the spirit of Christ, as Paul likes to describe him, right? In, in, in other words, it's the spirit that has first inhabited Christ. It's the spirit that has first sort of deified the humanity of Christ, if we can mm-hmm. use that language, um, and suffuse that humanity of Christ. So I like to speak about the spirit, the Pentecostal spirit, as the spirit who has already been inflected to, uh, for us by Christ. In other words, the spirit's dwelling on Christ has made a difference to the spirit that comes down to us. So, in a, so then, in, 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 a, in a real sense, I, I really think it is. I really think the Son is sending us the Spirit, not simply in terms of His divinity, but but in terms of His humanity as well, as the, as the one God Man. Typically, the sending of the Spirit has been described in terms of well, it's a divine act. Right. I would argue it's, it's a theandric act. It's a divine human act. Because the Spirit has first suffused Christ's humanity, so in that sense, um, you know, I, I think Bart Bart has a very interesting uh, take on this. He talks about the, the threefold parousia of Christ: mm-hmm. that Christ returns in His resurrection, He returns at Pentecost, and He returns at uh, the future eschatological judgment. But these are one and the same return, right? This is one and the same act in in three different modes, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, so he's keeping up with inseparable operations as well here. And I think it's, I think it's, I think this, um, you know, I think it's a beautiful doctrine actually to stress the unity of Christ and the spirit here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in what ways would you make any comparisons or perhaps any uh, uh, 
yeah, comparisons is, is a fine word. Uh, thinking through uh, the fact that in, on the one hand, you've got the, the son who puts on flesh and dwells among us. You have this sort of, as you said, you want to obviously distinguish that the father didn't put on flesh, the spirit didn't put on flesh. In the same way, on the one hand, we want to say the Holy Spirit truly does indwell the believer, make us temples of God, et cetera, while also the presence of the Father and Son living in us or something like that, right? So how do you, how do you kind of flesh that a little bit, a little bit further in terms of the, uh, the sort of distinct mode of the Spirit as the sort of indweller, uh, while also saying, obviously, you know, Paul will say things like, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, or the Spirit of Christ lives in us, this kind of thing. Uh, how would you take that a step further and say, okay, this is a unique uh, or a distinct uh, you know, work of the spirit or a distinct, uh, you know, a mode of the spirit, however, however you want to maybe you know, talk through that definition mm. and mm. saying that, uh, it is really truly the spirit while also God, all, you know, all three persons or whatever. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. It does. I mean, um, um, and this is, this has been one of the, uh, critiques, um, made against inseparable operations that somehow it makes it impossible for us to have distinct relations yep. with the persons of the Trinity, including in the indwelling. I mean, Jesus says in John 14, 23, that if you, if you love me, you will obey me and my father will love you and we will come and make our home with you. So even though the New Testament speaks specifically about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Son is also, is also kind of assumed, right? Because, because the Christ lives in us, right? And we are in Christ and Christ is in us. So it's both the Holy Spirit as well as Christ that are, that, that are indwelling us. Um, and by extension, we have to say the Father as well, but not as one who is sent. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would, the, the way I would spell this out is to say that we, we, distinguish, we distinguish the, uh, the indwelling of the Son from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in terms of exemplar causality. <clears throat> this is the language I'm using. Um, it's, it's kind of a longer conversation here. Uh, and it's, be, it's been one of the more complex conversations throughout the whole book. <clears throat> but the idea here is this, that the, 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 the son is dwelling in us specifically in the sense that he is forming us according to the knowledge of the father. He's transmitting to us his own personal property of Logos. Um, and the spirits indwelling us in the sense of transmitting to us his own personal property as love. Right? So they are they become exemplars for us. We receive knowledge or understanding, revelation, right, from, from the word, basically, who is the self who's the self-revelation of the Father, and we receive love from the Holy Spirit. Romans 5 5, right? Christ has poured, God has poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he has sent us. Um, so, and, and that's where the distinction lies, right? It, it's a, di- so I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, um, you see, it's not the kind of distinct, it's not the kind of objectifying distinction that you can, you can make, oh, there goes the sun or there goes the Holy spirit. Mm-hmm. It's a self-involving kind of distinction. You find yourself to be, to know God because you have the sun and you find yourself to love God because you have the Holy spirit. And this goes back to Calvin's and Augustine's under, you know, idea that, that knowledge of God and knowledge of the self go, go, go hand in hand. This is an, a truly experiential kind of knowledge. It's, it's a knowledge by tasting. It's, it's not an objectifying type of knowledge where, you know, you sort of distinguish between the subject and object. In fact, the subject and object become reunited in this knowledge because we begin to know God through God's self. Mm-hmm. 
right? And and this is where I mean Jesus was was indwelling. I mean he was uh, he was incarnate and he was doing wonderful things in Palestine, but they did not know him. You know, they were looking at him. They did not recognize who God was, right? They, they did not, they didn't recognize that God was in him. It was it was only because of the spirit, because of the the illumination of the spirit, that this knowledge became to register, began to make sense. So I really do think that this knowledge of the Trinity can only be this kind of self-involving knowledge by which the Trinity draws us to to uh, to itself, and by the missions, the the uh, the invisible missions of the Son and the, and the Holy Spirit. That's why I think it's only in the missions that the persons are truly distinguished, because in their operations they're always acting together. But in the missions, they are distinguished. Mm-hmm. So missions are not merely appropriated. They are distinct for the persons. They are distinct to the divine persons. Right? So that's kind of, it's kind of a distinction that I'm, I'm making throughout the book um, between missions and operation. Because I, I think this is a real confusion that's, that, that's um, you can see this in, in Grudem sometimes. Look at the operation of Jesus. Jesus is subordinate to the Father. Therefore, he draws conclusions about, about the uh, uh, about the identity of Jesus, right? About the ontological identity of Jesus Christ. And I think, right, I think that's wrong. Yeah, I think uh, I had a quote here that I wanted to read that I think is yeah. helpful that you have right in the introduction, actually. Because um, this, this kind of goes along with what you're saying here. You say, you know, such indivisibility between the persons is is without equal in the finite world. For this reason, we cannot probe its depths. We cannot explain it. We lack the ca- capacity to understand it. We can only attest to it in faith. It cannot be stressed enough that the current volume must be understood as a modest exercise in theological grammar rather than an impetuous explanation and representation. We do not claim to be able to explain triune inseparable actions, to show how it functions, to lay bare its logic, or to discover its essence. As a grammatical exercise, the most we can aim at is adjusting the uses of our language. The conviction behind this is that there is a point to the grammar because it aims to regulate language use, yet without the presumption of an exact mapping of language into uh, unto the divine reality. I think that's such a helpful uh, little caveat there, a paragraph there to say that there is a sense in which we are doing this by faith, right? We're taking what's been revealed to us, doing the best we can mm-hmm. to make sense of all the biblical passages and all the different uh, potential contradictions or logical, illogical things that we can't make sense of. Uh, and it seems like a lot of times, and I'd like that to kind of hear your thoughts on this, it does seem like a lot of times where people get in the most trouble. And this is what every church father says to every heretic, you get in too much trouble when you try to explain too much, right? When you, when you, when you try to do too much logic or, or tie too many things together, that's actually where you get in trouble. So, um, so would you say that in some sense in separate operations is both a positive constructive uh, doctrine and also apophatic in a way that's sort of like, here are the things we don't want to say. How do you work through maybe some of the, the distinction between sort of the positive things we can say and the things we want to sort of shy away from or be careful not to say too much about. Oh yeah. It's definitely an apophatic doctrine as well. And and I think I'm glad you brought that up that passage because I really do think about it as, you know, as a grammatical qualification, uh, as a grammatical stipulation, it's a rule, it's a rule, it's a rule of speech basically. Um, So, but we really have no inkling as to what it means for God to act inseparably. Um, and when I when I talk about the agency of the Trinity as being a single agency, um, it is a single agency, but at the same time, it's not a boringly single agency. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's not a God is not a monad. God is a tr- Trinity, and within the single operation, just as within the sim- simple substance of God, there is a there is a directionality from the Father through the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, but we don't only. Really, we have no inkling how that actually that works. 
right? But we know it's true. We know it's true, and therefore this can help can help qualify the statements we make. And it's it's in part particularly when it comes to concrete activities, the concrete activities uh, of um, of the Trinity, such as the atonement, that we can really leverage this rule rule of speech to help us and better understand, or perhaps maybe not so much better understand, but prevent distortions right. and misinterpretations of these actions. I think it's a tension, you know, it's between, between trying not to say too much um, and, and, and still bearing witness, yep. right, to something which is there. Um, but yeah, um, if I can just add one more thing here. Um, the reason why we can um, distinguish between the Son and the Father is because of propositional revelation. It's not because of operations. It's not because of what Jesus does, because what Jesus does is precisely what the whole Trinity does. So we don't, we don't actually have an, we don't have an experiential knowledge uh, of the distinction of the persons from their operations. It's because of what Jesus says. It's that verbal communication when he talks about him and the father being one and him receiving his operations from the father and so on. So, so it's grammatical in a sense, right? It's grammatical. We have to trust it. We have to trust revelation to make sense of this. Yeah. I think, um, you know, when I, when I teach it to students, sometimes uh, just Dr. Trinity in general, I feel like sometimes I'm, I can be too apathetic. I need to mm -hmm. be a little bit more careful. Sometimes I'm like, okay, if this is true, then we can't say this and we can't say this and we can't say this and we can't say mm -hmm. this, you know, and some of it is, you know, um, okay. If God is simple, then here are some things we just can't say that this just wouldn't make sense. If we believe right. God is one, if we think God is immutable and unchanging and perfect, then we just can't say X, Y, Z. So there is the apophatic, there always is the apophatic uh, access to it. But I think what you, what you offer is a helpful um, distinction to say, but also we've been given a lot of things to say and to bear mm -hmm. witness to, as you say, which mm -hmm. is, I think, even a better way to say it. Not just mm -hmm. we're explaining things, but we're bearing witness to who mm -hmm. God is. Yeah, we know it's true, but we don't know how it's true. Yeah. We, we know God is Father, but we, we don't know what that means. I mean, we know so, some of what that means, that he has a son. We know that he has that the Father is unbegotten, that the Son is begotten. But beyond that, you know, what else does fa the fatherhood of God actually reveal about the Father? We know it's true, and therefore I'm, we're going to use the language because it's been given to us. Right. And it kind of orders everything else we say about God. Yeah. Okay. Let me, let me ask you one last question. This is, this is still, uh, I think, I've, I think this is still a softball, but it might be a little bit of a, of a uh, faster moving uh, softball, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but you, you deal with uh, Ronner a lot in this book, which I think is helpful because there is uh, I don't think, you know, maybe your average seminary student, PhD student, uh, perhaps even biblical scholar has a, has a real firm grasp on Ronner's teaching. Mm -hmm. But it does have a lot of implications, and, and I think it's filtered into a lot of our thoughts sort of maybe indirectly in some ways about mm -hmm. um, the distinction between the uh, theology and the economy or the distinction between who God is and himself and then how he has revealed himself. Uh, and, you know, Rahner seems to uh, conflate those things in some ways, you know, the substance and the persons just are each other or something like that. So how do you work through that? Um, the, the taxis, the order of the Trinity, the fact that the Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct persons. Uh, it is fitting for the Son to be sent, not for the Father, for example, while not just sort of collapsing everything on top of itself and just saying, well, the persons just are God and vice versa. So what are some of the ways that you, uh, uh, this is, a, I, I'm in the, for some reason, I'm in the, uh, the habit today of just asking long questions, uh, long winding questions. I try to be a short question answer, but um, I, it's like, I want to talk to you for four hours about this. So I'm getting everything in. Uh, in the hour that we have, but uh, okay, more simply, 
what is sort of Ronner's rule in terms of the persons and the nature? Uh, what are the problems you see with that? How do you explain maybe a, a better way to talk about the, uh, the nature of God, who the Father, Son, and Spirit are as God, and then how they're revealed uh, in their missions? Yeah, you know, this is not a softball at all. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> it's partly because it has the name Ronner in it, and anything with that name in it is not going to be a softball. I mean, Rana's rule is that the immanent trinity is the economic trinity, and the economic trinity is the immanent trinity. And but what Rana is trying to do with that, um, with that rule, um, is to legitimize, is to legitimize a, um, a way of talking about the immanent trinity that starts from the economic trinity. Rana is saying that the that the economic trinity truly manifests and truly expresses the immanent trinity. And therefore, we can start from the from the economy and work our way up to the theology, as it were. Um, now, I think that this this language of about the two trinities is somewhat misleading, yeah. right? I think it's misleading, and I think a much better way of talking about this is to simply to talk in terms of processions and missions, um, and and to think about the missions. Um, as the as being extensions of processions, or simply temporal processions, um, the mission of the sun extends the procession of the sun. That is, the ex- extends the coming forth of the sun, the being begotten of the sun from the father. It extends that into creation, right? And the same thing about the same thing about the, the the mission of the Holy Spirit. And I think the reason why the reason why the language of procession and mission is better than the language of imminent and ec- economic trinity is because a mission always involves a created effect, right? And therefore, once you talk about a created effect, you, you, um, you, you are a little bit more cautious about you, what you read back into, into the so-called imminent trinity. Mm-hmm. Whereas Rahner's rule seems to almost invite us to import everything back into the and to read everything back into the uh, into the imminent trinity. So then, why shouldn't we read the subordination of the sun into the imminent trinity? Yeah. Well, in my in my framework, well, because in a mission you have the created effect, and the subordination pertains specifically to the created effect, because because you need a separate nature to be subordinate, and therefore, um, it sort of prevents that it prevents that transition transition back into the imminent life. But at the same time, I think the, um, my, my frame, well, not my framework, but this framework of procession and mission allows us to see in what way the mission is fitting with the procession, with, with the, with the procession. Because what I would argue is that the, the, the human obedience of the son is the um, authentic expression on a human plane of the fromness of the sun, what Fred Sanders calls the fromness of the sun or the begottenness of the sun of the Texas, right? So in the imminent trinity, uh, if we were to continue using this language in the imminent trinity, you have a Texas. The father is not from anyone. The, the son is from the father and the Holy Spirit is from the father and the son. If we go with the filioque. Um, now this fromness of the sun is rightly expressed, properly expressed as obedience in the in the mission of the son why mm-hmm. not because he's the son not because he's the eternal son but because this eternal son has assumed a human nature whose proper relationship to to the father is in terms of obedience so you see i think the mission 
the mission properly expresses uh, fittingly, you use the language of fittingly, right? Fittingly expresses the, the particular taxes of each divine person in the Trinity itself. But you can't just read back everything you find in the mission or everything you find in the operations of the mission of the, uh, um, of the person sent into the, into the imminent Trinity. Is yeah, that what so you're getting at, Brendan? I wasn't, yep. I'm not sure if, if that's no, I, what you had in mind as you're asking this question. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly right. I was thinking through, you know, um, you even brought up subordination and some of that kind of stuff, you know, just the, the natural outworking that comes from that if you're not careful. Uh, you think of the classic Athanasius and Arius argument, you know, where it's, he's a son, therefore he must be X, Y, Z. And Athanasius wants to say, well, on the one hand, it would be odd for the son to send the father. It's fitting for the son to be the one who is sent. But that doesn't mean that we have to freight all of what it means to be a son onto Jesus uh, just because we get that revelation or just because we, we acknowledge that that order. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was looking for. I, I uh, Like I said, I asked a, a long winding question there that uh, was not helpful. So there's so many questions in that one one yeah. question, actually. Yeah. Well, and you do a good, but this is why people should buy the book because you, you do, uh, you do a good, uh, interaction here with Ronner. I think that's really helpful. Um, that's one of those, like Ronner is one of those guys that when you're doing Trinitarian theology, he's always sort of in the back of your mind or he's out here and you, you catch him when you read modern works on the Trinity. But, but I think most people don't know kind of what he's doing and why it's as big of a problem. Some of us adopt, uh, have adopted some of his language and then tried to make it work. You know, I think Fred actually, uh, said on a previous podcast, you know, he said, it's fine to talk about imminent and economic if you very clearly define what they are but basically mm -hmm. you're using you're using terms that have already been sort of uh abused so much that they're really not helpful in the broad scheme of things right so. now do you think runner has been has been played a part in the uh, 2016 controversies here maybe indirectly, indirectly. yeah mm -hmm. i don't know that i've seen any of those guys quote him sort of directly but it does feel like you know you brought up grudem for example it does feel like there's a uh, a little bit of a, a ronarian assumption for mm -hmm. lack of a better word, you know, so right. may, maybe yes. more indirectly than directly. I don't see any of them saying, well, as Ronner says, you know, but there is, yeah, does seem yeah. to be a little bit of that uh, indirect influence for sure. Maybe a little Mulmanianism as well, perhaps, but. Yeah. Yeah. Because we are good evangelicals and we want to take revelation seriously. Yeah. But we, we forget that revelation is revelation in a medium and the medium medium is created. It's a created medium. It's not, we're not the creator and therefore not everything is going to translate simply one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah. Well, that's, that's where the mystery and the faith is, is so important. You know, um, I, do a, I do a Christological heresy exercise for my students where I have them get into groups and they have to argue against a heresy. And then I'm the uh, heretic debater. So if they get Arianism, I'm Arius. So I'll have, them, I'll have them kind of debate with me. And I always will tell them, well, look, I'm just reading the Bible. You know, you're the one making up these fancy terms and you're the one, you know, saying mystery to get out of the fact that uh, you don't have as good of a grasp of the Bible as I do. You know, uh, and, and what they're taught to say is no, actually part of being a creature and part of being a finite person is that we do have to lean into the mystery. That, that is actually part of what it means to have faith. You know, so yes, you want to take revelation seriously, but you've got to be careful not to take it quote unquote so seriously that you end up saying more than you should. Yeah. And revelation has a preferred method of interpretation as well. I mean, it yep. didn't just land in a vacuum. It came with its own rules of interpretation. Yep. I'm not saying inseparable operations is one of these rules, but you know, the regula fide, for example, you know, the, the, the framework of interpretation in the early church was quite clear for them uh, in a way that it's not for us, unfortunately. Yeah. And I think the doctrine of inseparable operations does so well, and I think you model this so well in the book, is that it does give us uh, conceptual tools to make sense of the text, right? It, it does help us. It is a sort of 
thing that comes from the text that we're trying to use, as you say, you know, that grammar to describe what's happening there. So, you know, it's, it's not itself, maybe, uh, you know, there's no Bible verse that says inseparable operations, but it's certainly a tool that is really helpful, I think, to work through some of the thornier issues that you run into in the text. And I think you do a good job of, of showing that in these passages. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Yeah. All right. Well, Donna, uh, we've gone uh, too long. Like I said, I could go four hours, but um, but we'll we'll stop it here. So, uh, yeah, same God who works all things uh, by Donna Vidu from Erdman's uh, fantastic book. Uh, I could not put it down once I got it. Partially was uh, just my own excitement that there was a book on inseparable operations I could actually read. Uh, but it turns out it's actually a great book too. So that's that's always the hope is when you get that you're like oh finally and then you you know you're not disappointed. That's that's the goal. So. I'm glad you think that, Brandon. I think there's still lots of things to be said about inseparable operations and plenty of more areas where we can explore its uh, fecundity, I think, in some sense. And hopefully you will contribute to that uh, in, in the near future as well. Yeah, we'll, we'll hope so. So I appreciate it so much, Adonis. Thanks for being on. Thanks a lot, Brandon. <laughs>